0: So this is a topic that's been, it's sort of a favorite of mine. I've talked about it oftentimes. Uh, It always seems to come up in conversations with with students so frequently. And it's the area of doubt and trust and faith, that whole area. And how crucial it is to get to know this. And... um, I I played around with this. I actually observed, explored, made it a a real topic of interest for myself some years ago to actually sort of really get to know whenever there was doubting happening and and how it was showing up and when it was there and when it wasn't there, when it was strong, when it wasn't. It was fascinating. And, And until that time, I'd never really considered it very important. I kind of was like, yes, it's one of the hindrances, yes, yes. And um, one of my teachers had said, it's the biggie, once upon a time. And so I kind of, you know, piqued my interest. But then I decided to just really check it out in my experience, and it is the biggie. (laughs) So I thought I'd talk about it again tonight. Mm, Doubting. Well, first of all, always to remember that... This is the realm of the eight vicissitudes. it 's how I usually start my Dharma talks to remember that life is challenging at times, life is lovely at times, life is everything in between at times and this is normal. and we know it conceptually, but we don't behave as though we know it. you know we just we complain whenever it's not okay and we get all excited and thrilled and grabby when it is great and we get bored and depressed when it's in between. I mean (laughs) and if we really knew it we wouldn't would we? (laughs) But we do. So obviously we don't. So it's just another reminder, another time. Up it goes and down it goes. And then there's another thing to remember in terms of this which makes it even more poignant somehow is the Buddha asked us to remind ourselves and to say every day, not just this is is the land of the eight vicissitudes, but I'm of the nature to become sick. Nothing and no one will protect me from this happening at some point, points. I'm of the nature to get old. Nothing and no one can prevent this from happening. This is the deal. And I'm of the nature to die. And nothing and no one can prevent this inevitability. This is absolutely inevitable. And I'm of the nature to lose everything and everyone I hold dear, sooner or later, somehow or other. And the only true possession which I actually have, because nothing else I can control and it's all conditioned and it's all going to move and eventually go, the only thing that won't leave, that will always be, I can say my one true possession, he calls it, is the effects of my actions, is the waves of energy that come out when I behave in a conscious way even in an unconscious way my karmic waves i can't not have those and i can't ever not be subject to the effect of those as well as everyone who's in anywhere re- reception of that and so that kind of focuses on the four vicissitudes that we don't even want to believe happen so let's really face it you know this is this is the unpredictable realm and furthermore we're sense eight we're sensory beings. We're sensitive beings. We function through senses. You know, how we operate is hearing, and smelling, and seeing, and, and sensing, and tasting. And we're delicate with that. And sometimes we're exquisitely delicate with our senses. We're sensitive beings. And we like to go along like, I'm fine, and I've got lots of armor, and I've got my nice thick skin, and I'm buoyant, and everything's okay. But it's often a cover-up job or temporary, because then suddenly something, oh. Two of us were walking along at the same time this morning when we we both stumbled upon that bird's nest that had just fallen out of the tree, you know, and the two little eggs. It's like, you know, you think you're fine coming down to the meditation hall, and suddenly there's this, oh. You know, it's like, oh, we're sensitive. It's sweet we're sensitive, but we are vulnerable. So we're in the eight vicissitude country. We're going to die, get sick, all these things are going to happen, and we're sensitive about it. And so that makes us very vulnerable. It makes our life unbelievably vulnerable. We live in that state. We don't want to think about it. We don't want, you don't want me to say what I've just said. Stop being such a bummer, you know, like, let's just be happy. But the Buddha said, we should think this way. We need to think this way. We are sensitive. We are vulnerable. Life is unpredictable. How do we therefore proceed? How do we therefore live our lives with that reference, you know, with that context? I mean, that was the reason he went off on his search in the first place, was because he got to realize oh, we do get sick and we do get old and we will die and I do, leave, you know, lose things and. And uh, I need to know, is it possible to actually live any kind of reasonable way, knowing that? And of course, that's was why he did what he did and that he found it is. That's what he then taught, how to do it. Well, what happens as we encounter all the ups and downs of our lives? being sensitive as we are, being insecure as we are, and vulnerable as we are. We do all kinds of things. We respond in all kinds of ways to cope with the facts, these facts, these ups and down facts. And lots of them aren't so helpful. Lots of them cause us more entanglement, entanglement and then more entanglement and then more entanglement because the way we think and we've we've learned to think and on a survival level it's appropriate this introduction could be to any dharma talk by the way it's like whatever the topic we're going to explore it's always true what we do is when it's pleasant as we want it and we start getting to grasp more and chase more and we you know hope and dream and scheme and tilt forward and when it's unpleasant when the those vicissitudes are happening, then we resist and we worry and we shrink and we struggle and we get mad and we all know we all do this. It doesn't help, but we do it anyway. Somehow we think it will help and we know better, but our little selves forget that. So we struggle again. There's two of the five vicissitudes, five uh, hindrances, five things that we do, behaviors that we have, beliefs that we have and attitudes that we carry and ways that we move through and proceed, which are, which are not helping, which don't help us, which hinder us from freedom. They, they entangle us further. Wanting, resisting, being distressed, agitated, squirmy, jumpy, Uh, spinny and it's opposite collapsing, sinking, dullness sloth, torpor okay that's four of the five and the fifth of these five ways that we behave ways that we respond to these ups and downs is doubt when it's going sideways or it's peculiar or it's troublesome or struggling and difficult one of the things we do is we like I don't know what to do with that we get worried we get confused we lose confidence we don't know how to then be sometimes it's clear i'm going to just fight this thing and push it away which isn't necessarily a helpful thing but there isn't the uncertainty but at other times there's lots of uncertainty so this this particular of these hindrances is the biggie this one this feeling so let's go into this feeling a little bit and explore it a bit more like I really did for that time, for it was a year. Maybe it was just often asking, you know, is there any doubting? What's it like? So when we're doubting, it's sometimes hard to find it because it's so pervasive and it's so common in our experience that's unrecognizable. Any anything that's really common is so habituated that's so familiar that you can't tell. But it's easier to tell when it's not there. And you can recognize, oh, yes. So the opposite of doubting is simply, I mean, you'll choose your own words, but it's a feeling of um, confidence. It's like, it's fine. And when, the, when I have in me this state, when I'm living in a state of confidence, ease, no questioning, it's as though there's nothing hanging me, holding me back. I can just take the next step or say the next word or make the next decision or go to the next whatever it is, interview, whatever it is. And there's no hesitating. I just carry on. It's like flowing happens, right? But when there's doubting, it's like, oh, I'm not sure if I should go now or later or what I should say when I go. I'm not quite ready. Uh, uh, this is sort of pulling back, hesitancy, yeah? There's confusion, uncertainty, and uh hesitation. remember when Joseph said to me once he said, You know when you're walking along country road and you get to a fork in the road, take it <laughs> 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 uh, you're stuck. Take the fork. What do you mean? Take the fork it's like, ah." Uh. That's doubt, he said, that's doubt. There's that feeling of like, what? what? <laughs> so that feeling, how often do we have that feeling? Not quite sure what to do. Shall I have more of another spoonful or not? What do you think? I mean, it's just, it's a little sometimes and silly, but it's sometimes so significant. Or are you rehearsing? Are you rehearsing? Anybody rehearsing what you're going to say to us when you come and meet us? No, no rehearsing. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if they'll like me. I wonder if it's going to come out sensible. Am I going to sound like I'm actually practicing? You know? I'm wondering. I'm one, not sure. Not sure. All of that. That's all doubting. There's tons of it. Or we explain something and we think I don't. I didn't hear what they said. I don't know if I've got it. You know, maybe I. Maybe I. You know, maybe I'm not intelligent enough. Or maybe it's something. There's that. You know, all of those feelings. It's like. It's not okay, hung up. When it's not there, we don't even think, we don't. It's quiet inside. There isn't wondering, there isn't confusion, there isn't like hesitancy. It's just like, okay, on to the next thing, it's all okay. It's easy, it's flowy. Flowy is my word for that, but you know what that's like. When we have it, very often, not always, but very often, when we're hung up like that, we don't like it. It's not just that we're hung up, it's that there's it's unpleasant that and we're hung up. So on top of it, we add the other hindrance, which is aversion, you know, like, oh no. And then we might add judgment, I don't know, oh no, I'm supposed to know, <laughs> you know, I'm not good enough, I want to know. Or something, it's like, how can I get out of this feeling, I can't stand this feeling this feeling of being stuck and like I don't know what to do. I've got to do something about it because it's so intolerable to sit here and not know. I want flow that she talked about. You know, where's the flow? I need this. I don't want this. These are hindrances adding, right? Because it isn't just a. a I'm, I'm not sure and I'm okay not being sure. It's usually I'm not okay not being sure. I want to be sure. I want to know. I want to be confident. I don't like this. Huh? So often that's there as well it's not pleasant usually when this is operating in us however little you know another spoonful or not or or if it's really it's really big i don't know i've got to have this conversation with this person you know and i don't know when to say it and if i should add those pieces and if i add those pieces will that work or will they take that wrong or you know the you know what am i going to present when i'm being interviewed by this for this new job when am i going to drop the bombshell about i'm leaving you know i mean you know all of those are all doubt right whatever however intense it's all the same feeling the thing about it and why i'm going on about it why it's important is that it's one of all the five they all do this but this one does it big time is when i'm in that state when that state is being experienced the the uh, what is born out of that state typically, I would say always, you have to check and see if it's always for you, um, is me, me, I come out of it. In other words, I'm in this state, there is a state being experienced of uncertainty, confusion, hesitancy, don't know quite what to do. I better do something then. I don't know what I should do. What am I supposed to do? I need to do something. I want to get rid of this. How do I deal with this? I, I, I. When we're in a state of flow, the state of trusting, the state of everything's all right, there isn't any of that, or it's not very obvious, this commentator inside goes quieter. It doesn't go like, I love the flow. It doesn't usually say anything. It just flows along. (laughs) Right? There isn't anything you have to do with flow, get more of it, hang on to it. You just, life is just happening. Yeah. There isn't that sense of me needing to something. This is the nature of the hindrances in general. When there's something pleasant in the vicissitudes and the sense of like, ooh, this is lovely. And suddenly I want it. I then start planning and how can I have it and I need my iPhone so I can at least photograph that nest or something suddenly there's the i being born right that sense of you which is a doer the doer comes out the same with a resistance and aversion when it's unpleasant if it's just unpleasant and we can just experience unpleasantness unpleasantness but usually what happens is i don't like it i have to fix it i've got to blame somebody i something i've got to run away and hide whatever it might be or i it's my fault or the maker of the I, the separate sense of me, and the stress that goes with that are the hindrances. And doubt does it big time. The other thing that's so um, fascinating, I think, about the I, one, about doubt, the doubt one, when that's there, it's so clever, it's so convincing that it's actually being discernment it's being very wise. I better be careful here. I'm not sure which will, you know, I've got to protect myself, make quite sure I make the right decision. It's easily sounds like wisdom. And sometimes it is, that's the thing. A degree of it is discerning. I'm not gonna just make a decision with not enough information. I'm gonna wait and see, hesitate a little, get a little more information you know, sort things out a little bit more, wait till things get a little more clear and then I can proceed with my next flow, whatever that is. So that's reasonable, that's sensible. It's foolish not to. Fools rush in, right, where angels fear to tread. Remember that little proverb? So that is discernment and it is wisdom. But the thing with all of, the, uh, all of these hindrances, they themselves aren't necessarily hindering us to want to be kind isn't hindering us, it's motivating us to be careful. You know, to not want to hurt people's feelings isn't necessarily hindrance. It's it's like, really, I have aversion to being clumsy, you know, being mindless and slamming the door and disturbing the people meditating. That's caring. That's not hindering. It's when it gets to a certain extent, when a certain degree that it's just running me and I have no mindfulness, then when it's in charge of me, then it's hindering because it's then the sense of me is, is functioning and not wisdom. Same with doubting. To a degree, doubting is wisdom, but beyond that degree, and you, when is that going to be inside you? We have to explore this for ourselves. Does it become, an actually, a maker of the entanglement, a leading us into the kusala that um, Pasco was talking about last night? When is it problematic? And it can just change in a moment from being sensible to being st- sticky too much. And there's no right or wrong in there. It's just this is an interesting journey to explore this whole thing. It's fascinating. <coughs> so I'll go on further about Trusting when we're in a state of doubting, when something is up, something we're struggling with, or something difficult's happened, or upsetting, or painful, or frustrating, or something is in our way, we feel stuck. When anything difficult happens, the tendency of our minds and the way our minds function all of our minds, the, the mind, the human mind functions, especially the fingery part of the left hemisphere, which is the coping mechanism, if you like, not the intuitive receiving part of the mind so much as the, the one that's trying to control and dominate our world, the one that we have developed so incredibly well. Um, it gloms onto things. I haven't said this for a few years. I remember I used to say this practically every retreat. The mind gloms onto things, onto objects. It just does. Years and years ago, and I have, haven't said this for years either, but I've read it years ago, Chogram Trungpa was teaching when he'd newly come to the West in Boulder, and he had a class of people he was teaching, and he had a blackboard, and he turned to the blackboard, and he wrote on the blackboard. This is what he did with his chalk on the blackboard. Try not to hit the microphone. He did it like this. And then he did. And he said, what did I just draw? Let's pretend I'm Chogram Trungpa just for a sec. (laughs) What did I just draw on my blackboard? It's hard. We don't have a blackboard. You have to use your imagination. The answer that came from the audience was a bird a window, you know, and then a seagull or something. That's what it's supposed to look like. And he said, no, I didn't. I drew the sky with a bird flying through it. But our minds go to the bird. Because that's the way we glom. We go to things. The mind looks at things. And when something's pleasant, we look at the pleasant thing. And when it's unpleasant, we definitely look at the unpleasant thing. It's a survival mechanism in the brain. Watch out for that snake. This might be poison. You know that might be a friend. You want to check out that person. You know, and so on. We do. That's how we we've, we've survived. But we we do that extremely. We glom onto th- things, and so we're very. And then with this developed left hemisphere of ours, we really reify things. And we speak and our language is all about nouns and it's all about things. And when we're upset and we're struggling in something, we look for something or someone, something to explain, some solution, some person to blame. We, we, our efforts go to thingness, to objects. And that's then the dual, dual experience, the subject and the object. I want that thing. And that's how, we, that's how we function. When we're more relaxed, when we're more at ease and there isn't something threatening us or worrying us or bothering us and we become more relaxed, we have much more a spacious sort of scanning awareness and we, our attention can flow and move and things can come in and out. But then something, a noise happens, we go, what was that? Right, we go right on to that, what was that thing? Or somebody said something and who was that? Suddenly we we focus, right? That, And then when we relax, our eyes more relax, our gaze relax, our attention is more fluid. And then when we're bothered about something. And then when you sit here meditating and you watch your mind, the times that it gets all into some little tangly something, something, it's about something. It's not about vagueness. It's not about usually boredom. It's not about a simple feeling of tiredness. It's something's bothering it, so it's now got its teeth into something. Is that true? So we go into that, and then it's either good or bad, and we like it or we don't, and it bothers us or it pleases us or something. It usually bothers us. So we get all caught up in that little me. And it's about a thing, or an event, or a word, or even a feeling sometimes. But usually then the, the people associated with the feeling. And that's what we mean by storytelling movie making. It's all about events and things. It's not about feelings and changing states and flowy things, all those vague words that belong in the right hemisphere. So this is the way the mind works, and it does for survival, and it's okay that it does, it's normal. But when doubting is happening, or in that state, subtle, it might be very subtle, it might be very dense and strong, what we do is we look for some solution to that unpleasant feeling and so we look for what can I trust because we want to be in a state of trusting not in that state of like I don't know what to do and so we look for solutions and the mind does this it just does it and so then we start asking ourselves and this is the question I'm asking you so what can you trust what's going to be helpful when you're doing that when the mind does that can you trust people Sometimes, sometimes they'll be useful. Sometimes they won't be useful. Sometimes they won't even listen. Right? Sometimes they'll come up with the completely opposite advice. You didn't even want to hear it, or is it right? That's sometimes okay. Sometimes not. No, you can't. It's not hundred percent trustworthy to just go to people, or um, you know your friend. Sometimes your friend. Same thing. Sometimes your friends are really useful. Sometimes they're not so helpful. Sometimes they leave and move to another part of the country. They get new friends or they die or something will happen to them. On the big picture, it's not utterly trustworthy. And not just friends. But what about wise people? Well, oftentimes we do go to wise people because we trust what they'll say because they're living with integrity and they have wisdom and they're kind and they'll listen and... Like the woman who goes to Eckhart Tolle, and apparently that really helps her because she, she realizes that it's not so important what she's saying, and she thinks he's wonderful, and he thinks he just sat there. Anyway, that's a, that's a complete aside. But wise ones sometimes are really helpful and really trustworthy, but not always. We were just talking the other day about a, the movie about the whole Rajneesh thing of me that happened in Oregon, you know, the wild, wild something. I haven't seen the movie, but Pascal had seen it. And, um, or what about the, our leaders? <laughs> you know, in our modern era, you know, we have elected officials who are supposed to be the wise, wise ones, and that's not so reliable. You know, or, uh, you know, the wise elders in our families. Sometimes that is reliable, sometimes not. Sometimes it was until they got so old that they forgot to say, they thought you their child, or if they were your child, or, you know, I mean, it's not reliable. And that's that whole thing. I mean, we can be, make light of it, but that area, we want to trust. We need to be able to trust. We need to be able to trust people. And that's why one of the worst crimes, you know, in our society, we all know, is when the most vulnerable who need to trust have their trust broken. You know, when you're young, you're vulnerable. It's, it's you know, to break somebody's trust is such a terrible thing because trust is, we're so vulnerable. We need to be able to, but these are the eight vicissitudes and it's not reliable. People, even if they are the the head man, Hmm. CEOs, what about trusting your own mind? I mean, I talked the other day about why we need to train it. Well, unless it's fairly well-behaved, it's not very trustworthy. We all know that's going to exaggerate. You know, it's going to throw up a bunch of arguments and opinions and all. We know all that. You're busy watching that. Distorted. It's going to have some kind of spin on something when you go. You can't think your way out of all kinds of difficulties reliably. Sometimes it's helpful, but often it isn't so helpful. It just digs you in deeper sometimes or sends you off in some weird direction or you get carried away with some other whole thing that actually didn't solve a problem at all. It just, you know, you know what? It, right? It's not very... And not just the mind itself, but some of the thoughts we have, they, they can be useful. Thinking can be, contemplation can be helpful. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. What is what is Reliable. What can you find that's trustworthy? Our hearts maybe. sometimes they are really reliable, and sometimes they're like completely armored or all carried away by fear, and then we can't we can't access that. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Steve, Stephen um, Bachelor describes the human heart as a mollusk you know one of those things that just is opening and closing so sometimes there's tenderness there and sometimes there isn't you've done that yourself meta practice sometimes it's very metaphor. other times it's the absolute opposite judging and frustrated and this is hopeless anybody had that in their meta practice just as much as the kindness sometimes that's not reliable then i like to go to nature for reliability Like things like the earth. You know, but even the earth will shake sometimes. That's very, very unsettling. Because even if people are unreliable and my mind is unreliable and my moods keep shifting, at least the earth isn't supposed to move. And then when it does, you know, that's so terrifying. So primitively terrifying. And I like also the seasons, you know, the changing of the seasons and the turning of the seasons and the returning, you know, the migrating geese. All of that gives me great sort of, I feel the reliability that now that they're doing their matings, singing, oh yeah, just like they should be. Thank goodness the eagles are back and that sort of thing. I, I, you know, receive lots of uh, encouragement from that. It is reassuring. And then we're living in this time where it's getting weird you know, and even the climate change is changing. And so it's supposed to be warmer than this, for heaven's sake. It's April, you know, like that's unsettling, isn't it? So that's not even, they're having more snow in the east and stuff and records are being broken. So that's obviously not that reassuring. How about our knowledge and our skills? Those are nice to have, skills you know, I know how to do this, I know how to make something, we all have different kinds of skills, I know how to play my guitar, I know how to make, I I like to make baskets, I don't make very many baskets, but I like to make, it's a skill, you know, little things like that which give us that sense of reassurance and confidence, silly little one just popped into my mind, I know I'm old fashioned in English, but a couple of years ago I was at a wedding, uh, part of my extended family, and um, and it was a, a two-day affair. The sort of family was gathering th- 40 or f- 30 or 40 people and uh, staying at this place. And then the, all the rest of the guests came the next day. And uh, so we were all kind of milling around each other. And, and, uh, and it turned out that I was one of the only few people who knew how to iron a shirt. So I ended up like having about <laughs> 35 shirts. So I, had to, I was trying to teach these young men. And they all wanted their shirts ironed. I'm like, that's a skill. That made me feel confident, you know. <laughs> a dying art, you know. I don't know anyone else in my family who knows. Well, you don't need to anymore because you can't iron polyester. But anyway, so those are things. But they then die, you know. We lose the ability to do things. You know, I have a dear friend who's older now and who had such a such a delicate hand and would do drawings. He was an architect. and uh, And now he has a tremor and he can't do it. You know, so even even the things we we once could do we can't we're not always going to be able to do we're going to get older you know our faculties those things aren't reliable our bodies bodies are pretty reliable i mean they're really closer to the truth than our thoughts that's for sure and our changing emotions and if we're worried then we can really feel it and if we're afraid we can really feel it and if we're really feeling light and easy we can really feel it they're very they're very much more reliable but they're not completely reliable you know, we can either not notice them or misread them, or they will change and they will stop doing some of the time, not completely. They will get sick. And discernment is this endlessly. Trying to find out what actually is reliable and where to go and what, where to get my support systems, where to find my encouragement, how to make my decisions about what's going to be helpful and what isn't. That's what discerning is, and it's we're always discerning because all these things are keeping changing and they're not that reliable, and sometimes they are. So this it's a very, it's very interesting being human. We're busy with the eight vicissitudes and with where do I, what encourages me to go which way and so it's it's always a sort of shifting thing, right? So, what do I place my heart upon? What do I have faith in then? What is reliable in this life, and sometimes the more we practice the more. I mean, Pascal, that first night, was talking about his mind just flickering, 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 and it isn't just the mind and the awareness that flickers, and then everything that it's perceiving is flickering, and that there are times in deep, quiet meditation where there's absolutely nothing stable anywhere, everything's just trembling, and and vibration is all there is, and who am I, and what is going on, it can feel extremely insecure, this is the you know, the real truth, anicca, is the truth of things are unstable. And so, is it possible to actually have faith in anything? So how do we proceed then? And then up comes all this doubt because of this, because of the changing nature of all these things, and as many other things, I just listed a few things. So this is where it gets so brilliant, the Buddha was so Brilliant. I like to remember that the tendency of my survival mind, my little mind, my left hemisphere mind, my human normal mind goes for things, subject, object, it pays attention to the things. And they will never provide reassurance because they're unstable, they're shifting, they're not even what they appear to be, they're just a a temporary manifestation of a bunch of other forces turning into something else in no time, That whole, the whole reality isn't as real. Everything is in this flux and flow. And that increasingly is perceived in meditation. And so looking to it for reassurance is doomed. But that's what the mind wants to do, because that's its habit. It's what it believes it needs. So it's frustrating. And will always be frustrating and never satisfying. So instead of saying what, which is looking for an object, don't ask for an object. Instead of the objecting, look at life in terms of verbs. Verbs, V-E-R-B-S. Said with an English accent, sounds like verbs. <laughs> because ways of being, ways of living, ways of experiencing ways of seeing can be very helpful reliably helpful it's not a fixed thing it's not a solid something it's a, it's a living dynamic which is where we gain our support where we can rest our hearts not on something and this is why we have to practice trusting and being and practice this shifting way of perception because the old way doesn't help old way meaning the small way the survival way when we look closely clearly truly as we get calmer, and we see the instability everywhere we don't really know what's next or why or what's this going to become? Or what's going to happen? And there's a lot of mystery that gets revealed. A lot of uncertainty slash mystery. Well, mystery puts a nice as a nice way of saying, you know, confusion and chaos. You know, that's a little more of a negative word. But when we can s- truly let it, our experiences of life, our, the appearances of things, be as they truly are, which is shifting mysterious we can't know the knowing is that is that subject object the mind wants to get information data something predictable what's next how do i do this what's what's what things when we stop doing that there's this flowing sense that's mysterious when we don't trust that mystery we want something certain but there isn't anything certain, really ultimately certain. Even mountain ranges, wasn't very long ago I saw the, uh, this animated thing on the television of, um, it was really speeded up like in geological time in five minutes, it was millions of millions of years. But it was really clear how India was another island beside Madagascar. You've seen this, a lot of you, I'm sure. And it goes woo, right across the Indian Ocean and it slams at great speed, very slowly, into <laughs> Asia and sends up the Himalayas. It's unbelievable to see that. When you, I mean, you know, the whole of the, you know, Pangaea breaks apart and moves and all that, which is itself fascinating. But that one particular bit is one of the most dramatic things that happens. This little triangle goes rrr, slam. Whoa. Even the Himalayas. So, we don't like the not knowing. We, especially our little minds, they like information. They like predictability. They like something. We don't like it when we're asked to trust the unknown, you know, the mystery. (gasps) It sounds kind of woo-woo. That's why we use that word. Woo-woo. Scary. Too vague. Not, Not enough information. Can we trust uncertainty? So let's put it into verbs. Let's just rephrase this, this tendency of I want to know something, Where, where what should I trust, how can I proceed from that languaging into verb languaging. What experiences, what skills, ways of living what behaviors are helpful to unentangle us? Not what things, what verbs, what experiences. Suddenly, we have the whole Dharma answering our question. How about being kind? Is this helpful? Whenever you're kind, does that help? Is that reassuring? How about counting a few blessings? I mean, I recommend that right at the beginning of anyone's meditation, to reassure the heart. There isn't anything solid to tread on, but something changes when we're grateful. Instead of insufficient, we feel fuller. The glass is now half full, and there's some calming that happens, and it happens. It's fairly reliable, which is why the Buddha suggested we do it. It's a practice. It's a way of perceiving. It's not something. Meta isn't something, a thing to get. We want to get it. We think if I say these phrases and I do this, you know, for 10 minutes, where's my meta? <laughs> That's just the subject object doing its thing. But when I actually allow myself to be grateful, let's say, to settle into taking a few moments and realizing, you know, uh, I don't know, what we do sometimes we do around food is just to think of all the different people who've been helping to make my lunch ready for me. Something does shift, something does soften. It's effective, it's an effective refuge, if you like. It's a healing. It isn't a thing, though. It's a being grateful practicing, it's a way of thinking, it's movement. It's the same thing that Pascal was talking about last night, about moving, it's the movement from being entangled and stuck to being free. What allows this to happen reliably, effectively, are these practices of, for instance, restraining myself when I feel like blurting out some whining criticism. Restraining is actually helpful at times. Wise speaking, the Buddha recommended wise speech as one of the eightfold path, if you don't know that already. When we are careful with our speaking, and we do it with consideration and not with anger, and we choose a time, a certain restraining, stop in the middle of a sentence if you're about to gossip about somebody, for instance, that reliably helps us feel a little better. It's, it's helpful. It's a way of behaving Sila, he says, living with some degree of moral conscience, care, is primary, or you won't even be able to sit still, let alone meditate. Like It's essential. If you're going around bumping into people and treading on people and offending people and exploiting people and abusing people, you aren't going to stand it. You won't want to even sit still for a second. You're going to have to be drinking and gambling your life away because you won't be able to tolerate stillness and your conscience inside, we have to do some restraining. For instance, it's one of the many things which reliably shifts us energetically, trustworthy. As we've been saying all along, Pascal's been saying again and again, it's this whole practice, what we're waking up to and what we're becoming conversant with is experiencing, on the level of experiencing. It's the verb part. You know, it's not the information, that's the concept part, those are the nouns. I've got a little quote here, I don't know who wrote this, who said this, but I'm going to quote it anyway. Pay attention. The gap between theory and practice is much smaller in theory than in practice. not relevant to anything I'm saying, it's just funny and it's about experience and practice. <laughs> so, the question is, what can I trust? And let me answer it with verbs. I can trust being kind. I can trust sitting. I can even trust breathing. To some extent, it's going to gather my attention. I can trust hearing. Hearing is happening. Hearing is clear. Hearing isn't an agenda item. Hearing isn't a solid thing to get, to irritate. Hearing is just hearing. It's a faculty. Sounds coming and going. I can add my judgments and get excited and tangled or not. But hearing itself is hearing. It's helpful. That's why we offer it as a practice. Balancing. Pascal talking last night about balancing, balancing, balancing energy. Enough energy, alertness, aliveness, enough ease, enough relaxation. Balancing is very, very skillful, very reliable, very helpful. Responding. Responding, receiving. Extraordinarily powerfully helpful to be able to live in this mode of receptivity, availability, interest. Holding. These are verbs. These are ways of living, ways of meeting our life, ways of responding to our life, which reliably lead away from confusion. Judging doesn't. Waiting and seeing does. All of the teachings the Buddha gave aren't things, dogmas, concepts. They're experiences, ways of experiencing life. And these are reliable. These we can trust. They do affect change. You wouldn't come back to a second retreat if something wasn't reliable about it. You You wouldn't arrange your life around it because it's effective for you in whatever way. There's something in there that's reliable. And it's how you're being, not something you're getting. And then we forget that. We think, I want that sit that I had yesterday. Or, you know, how do I get back that feeling? Because we've got back into the mode of, like, I can get. And it doesn't work that way. In fact, when I want something, I'm guaranteed not to have it when it means happiness and peace and ease and clarity because it's disturbed by the fact that I'm in there wanting. There's the hindrances in there. And when that relaxes again, who knows what's going to arise. But we're not in charge. We're not in control. The little getting part of us wants to be in control. So that's why it's so mysterious and it's so confounding and it's so against the normal flow. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. The very wanting something is the is the cause for it not to be there, and the very not wanting it anymore is enables it to whatever the it, but it's not even in it. It's so easy, and our whole our whole language is built on this noun structure, this subject object structure. So it's, it's 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 tricky to even talk, trying to talk truly. Another thing that I find helpful, um, we've said this to you too, you've heard this before, hearing being known or worrying being known or hungry being known or sore shoulders being known. It's one way of experiencing and of using language, using noting to experience your language. How about knowing hearing, knowing worrying, Present participles really work for me. Hearing or worrying or knowing I'm worrying. Knowing worrying's happening. Because that's the mindfulness, this extra part of us that knows what's happening while it's happening. But can we put it into present participle? The present experience of a verb is a present participle. And I find that really, really useful. Tiring, slogging, whining. Comparing, enjoying, moaning, bitching, being known, just knowing these things, coming and going. It's the flow of it all. Caring, Mm. wondering, worrying. I am a verb. Buckminster Fuller said it. He wasn't a Buddhist. Maybe he was a Buddhist. Whatever a Buddhist is, if it's a thing. (laughs) Practice being a verb. Practice verbing. Practice that as your mind goes. So when you ask questions, answer them this way, if you can. It's fascinating and fun. So... We talked about dharma lenses. I didn't really. I just listed a few of those lists very quickly the last time I was talking. But these lenses that the, that uh, these lists that the Buddha offered are aren't they're not things? Like for example, one of these lists um, is called indriya, and it is the five spiritual faculties. And the way we say it in English is that it's five things. You know, these are five things, and they happen to be faith energy or effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And those are all listed as nouns. But if we do them as verbs, then it's trusting, um, keeping on going, (laughs) it's like knowing, calming, settling, gathering, and understanding. It's activities. It's not things. Well, the first one you might have noticed is trusting the first of these indriya, these five spiritual faculties, we need to have, it's faith, actually, it's sadha. The word is sadha. And without faith, without trusting that practicing being present, being embodied, paying attention, coming into the present moment, if we don't trust the effectiveness of it, we won't even get past go. You know, we don't get out of jail And so we need to have a certain amount of confidence in the practicing itself in order to put our hearts into it. So we do need to trust our practice. And Ajahn Sumedho said, you know, the biggest problem for Western meditators is that we don't trust our practice. So we need to generate some trusting in the very things that we're talking about here, the very practicings, the very verbs, active practices, experiences that we're trying to tell you in our talks because it's the practicing that is what is affecting the change the disentangling, the leading to to freedom it's not knowing, it's not saying it's not reading it's simply experiencing looking, receiving waiting, relaxing opening inquiring Caring. So you can take any one of the of the um, the teachings that the Buddha taught in these lists, and uh, and this is why we like uh, Pasca does it too. I've always loved this. It's like thinking of them in terms of lenses, not in terms of things. Even the word practices, of course, means that we're going to be practicing them, but lenses. So I pick up the lens of hindrances. Okay. There are five of them. These have only got two, but let's pretend there's five here. And I'll just check out my experience in terms of, is there wanting? You know, is there agitating and worrying and spinning? Is there falling asleep and struggling and slogging? Which of these is there doubting? Is there any kind of shrinking, aversion, or anger going on in terms of experience? Then there's the awakening factors. Beautiful. Seven of them. That's a very big lens. Many of these things we can just check out. You know, is there is there knowing what's happening right now while it's happening? Mindfulness. Yeah. Is there keeping ongoing this energy that just keeps me here, interested, motivated, caring? Am I engaged in this? How's my energy? That's the second one. Is there interest? Am I? Is there wondering what's going on here? What else is here? I love that question that Pascal said. I've never had that I told him I've never heard that one and I really liked it a lot when he said that to ask that question what else is happening what else is happening that's bringing in that inquiry that curiosity wondering these are factors that help us awaken enjoying delighting oh yes trusting this that pity, that sense of well-being and then the calming the settling the resting balancing. These are the awakening factors in terms of verbs just turn them all into verbs. All of these things that the Buddha suggested we do are all ways of seeing us as functioning rather than thinking, acting rather than describing, engaged. A little thing to mention, and this is interesting, I think, that in the teaching the Buddha gave on the the five indriya or spiritual faculties, faith, when there's sufficient faith and we apply ourselves to this energy then comes forward. When we apply our energy to being present, then mindfulness starts to become obvious. And then mindfulness leads to a sense of collectedness and calm and concentration, which will eventually show us what we understand through our various realizations and insights, wisdom. that they—that That is the only one that he teaches this way. It's fascinating. They're called spirit, spiritual faculties, but as they grow and become established in us, which whether you know it or not, they are doing, whether you look at them or not, whether you check them out or not, whether you're conscious or not, they are growing by practicing. They become what's called Bala, B-A-L-A. They turn from faculties into powers, In other words, they absolutely become established forces that support us. Those things, faith or confidence in the Dharma, gets strong. It gets gets strong. It's like, I don't question it. I, I, I can question all I like and it's reaffirming, reaffirming every time. And there's energy for this, is it? uh, Wanting to apply myself to these practices because they do make change in me. They do affect. They do move me from being trapped and caught and confused and upset to being free from those moments and easy and flowing. They do mindfulness to actually realize I have this mind that can understand what's going on and observe it while it's happening. It just it grows and grows until you're you're inside your bowl instead of on the top, falling out of it. it. Just does happen. And the mind becomes malleable. It just becomes well-behaved. You don't want it to be running around like a stupid wild thing, thinking crazy thoughts and mean thoughts. It's like, it just it just starts to behave itself and become your friend, your ally. Oh. And there's then non-reactivity. Increasingly, these these grow and they they the sort of they hold us to keep us going. They become such powerful supports. I just think that's an interesting thing that he actually taught these same things as faculties to develop which then become forces. You know, I love that, it's reassuring. I've got two little things to read to you to end with. One is Joseph Campbell. Wise man as he was. The first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm, as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot be and will not be changed. Those who think they know, and their name is Legion, how the universe could have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world what you will have to teach is how to live in it and that no one can do who has not herself learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. Could have been the Buddha. And here's Chogram Trungpa. The everyday practice is simply Simply, (laughs) to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations, emotions, all people, experiencing everything totally without reservations or blockages so that one never withdraws or contracts into oneself. Simple. If you're quiet listening. Even if like five words go in there and land, that's good. Really, you know, to remind you, don't try and get it through the words. You know, let the impression come and your teacher is your own experience. I can't underestimate, I can't overestimate that. Anyway, thank you. So we've got half an hour and then we'll have our last half hour sit as usual at nine o'clock. A little chanting at the end.